Hi, this is Jim Lyon. You're listening to Viewpoint with me today, JJ, Jennifer Wilson. Hello, Jim. So it's good great to, to see be you. here. Thank you. JJ, I know that you're so young, you hardly remember <laughs> uh, you know, ancient American history, but so I'm kind. old enough to have lived through so much. And I remember being a student in high school in April of 1968, and it was a very tumultuous time. There were many demonstrations taking place against the Vietnam War. There was a lot of upheaval. There was a presidential campaign, uh, a lot of tension. You know, sometimes in modern uh, headlines, we think that the world has never been as upside down as this. But back in 1968, it seemed pretty upside down to me. I was a junior in high school, just getting ready for my senior year. And one of the most shocking events was suddenly that headline that said, Martin Luther King Jr. had been shot dead in Memphis, Tennessee. Mm. I mean, he was such a commanding figure on the stage. He had so much influence. He was controversial. He was a lightning rod. Uh, But he also was a voice of inspiration and aspiration for many people in the country, both black and white and of other ethnicities as well. And the murder of Martin Luther King in Memphis on that motel balcony I can have vivid recollection, even as I'm talking to you about it, what it was like going to high school that day, the next day. It happened in the evening. And going back to school the next day, what was going to happen next? Mm -hmm. This week on Viewpoint, we want to revisit that 50-year-old history with a little different twist about something else that happened that same night consequent to King's murder that actually was a redemptive moment. Ladies and gentlemen... I'm only going to talk to you just for a minute or so this evening because I have some very sad news for all of you. Could you lower those signs, please? I have some very sad news for all of you, and I think uh, sad news for all of our fellow citizens and people who love peace all over the world. And that is that... Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight in Memphis, Tennessee. J.J., do you know who that was talking? That was Robert F. Kennedy. Senator from New York. He was speaking in Indianapolis on the night that Martin Luther King Jr. had been murdered. He had come to Indianapolis to give a campaign speech. He was himself running for president. And in the moment, he had to stop. No campaigning, no plea for votes, no no framing of this tragedy in political terms. He spoke from his heart to a crowd of thousands, mostly African-Americans, who had not yet heard that King had died. And what we just listened to was the recording of his voice telling the crowd about King's death. It's a remarkable moment. And from that, he delivered a speech that helped calm the waters and saved Indianapolis from a lot of tortured vandalism and the burning down of buildings and violent rage expressed by people who were heartsick and heartbroken by King's death and were angry at a world that they could not change. Mm -hmm. Robert F. Kennedy, in that moment, actually became a voice, a healing balm. Yes. Now, the reason we're talking about that is 50 years ago, And I know that's old history for you, J.J., but you also have lived in a world framed by those events. Mm -hmm. And we have as our guest today Don Boggs, who lives here in central Indiana. He's spent a lifetime producing uh, in media. He's been a professor at university. He has devoted himself to storytelling in the most elegant and excellent ways. Yes. And he has produced a documentary called A Ripple of Hope that captures that 
evening and uh, retells the story about how one man, in this case Senator Kennedy, spoke in a crisis, the wake of King's murder, to a crowd that might have been incendiary, but instead walked away in peace. Don Boggs, thanks for being with us today on Viewpoint. It's a joy. And this story has grabbed your heart. I know that it's owned you for a few years in the sense that you have delved into the background and the context of those events. I know you've interviewed some of the principals. Of course, Senator Kennedy is gone. He would die two months after he gave that speech, but I know you've had contact with those who are his associates, some members of his family, and uh, you believe that that moment in Indianapolis actually proved a truth true, that uh, we all have a choice, and Senator Kennedy in his speech makes that clear. We all have a choice when we respond to a tragedy whether we'll be bitter and angry or whether we'll be a peacemaker and, and hope for something better and constructive. What is it about the story that has grabbed you most profoundly? I think it, it reaches to my uh, inner core, to, to my upbringing uh, in the Christian faith and the importance of valuing human beings because they, at essence, are all children of God. So, you know, my, my church uh, used to make a big deal about calling each other brothers and sisters, and I heard that on, on Sunday mornings. And it, as a young child, I th- it seemed a little strange to me, but it's like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> and now that I'm older, I look at that, revisit it in a different way. I, and I saw how people in my church valued me, even as a child. Hmm. And when, I, when they began to call me Brother Boggs, oh. uh, I felt kind of grown up. You know, like I'd, I'd come of age, Those and I was, you know, uh, Bill and Gloria Gaither's song, you know, "Family of God" would be another example of that. You're part of the family of God, brothers and sisters. And so I think, you know, that's that recognition of all of us as children of God. If, if, if you are my brother in Christ, if you're a child of God, you're a valued human being. You're a valued person, and I will treat you differently. And if, if we apply that in all aspects of our life, everything changes. And, and too often we don't. Even those of us who may say that, we don't do that. So if, if I believe that all people are children of God, politics changes. The way we talk about politics changes. The way we revere and respect other people, diplomacy changes. Romantic relationships change if we value people. Well, there's a kind of common humanity that that familial language brings to us. It transcends blood relationships. It's about our relationship as created beings of of one God who made us all in his image. And in the Robert F. Kennedy speech, of course, he identifies with an audience who is largely an African-American audience, and he's a white guy from privilege in Massachusetts. They're experiencing the grief and outrage of of one of their prophetic voices who spoke across all racial lines, but especially to that community about hope and justice, and now he's been taken cruelly. And yet, Kennedy in the speech demonstrates that humanity by reminding them, I know what it's like to lose someone I loved. Mm -hmm. My brother was taken. He doesn't mention his brother by name and so on, but, but he acknowledges this common thread of humanity. And I'm hearing you say, Don, that part of what happened that night draws you because it demonstrates that no matter what the crisis, no matter how desperate the moment or dark the hour, no matter how towering the mountain or deep the valley, we're all one blood created in the image of God and we have to find something in that 
connection that helps us move forward. This film, this documentary, I know 40 years after the event took place, you premiered it. Tell me about how that unfolded and if there are any testimonies, you might say, that come from that experience. When we completed the film, we premiered it in Indianapolis with the Heartland Film Festival. And we had a great turnout, and I was standing out in the lobby of the theater after the film, and you know, people were coming by to ask me questions about the film or to speak to me briefly. And this older gentleman came up to me, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said to me, thank you for your film. I'm a retired Indianapolis firefighter. And April 4th and the days following April 4th, I cannot tell you how angry I was, how angry I was at African Americans that were rioting in all of these cities across the United States. I was angry not just because of buildings that are being burned down or vandalized. I was angry because my friends, my coworkers, were risking their lives every day to put out fires that, that weren't accidental, that were intentionally caused. And he said, I have carried that anger and a racist bias against African Americans for 40 years. And tonight, after seeing this film, I laid that down. I don't condone people who did those things. I don't condone those actions. But I understand why they happened and how deep the love of the African American community was for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you for making this film. You know, those are, those are rare comments that you get as a filmmaker. You know, sometimes you meet the audience face-to-face -face in a premiere, and occasionally something comes up like that. But normally, you never know. You never know this side of heaven, what kind of impact this film has had on individuals. It's just gratifying to see that. And in that moment in Indianapolis, Robert Kennedy stepped away with that kind of gratification for speaking so simply, so plainly, so confidently, not in fear of his life even, in that situation in Indianapolis. As you're listening to Viewpoint today, we want you to know that we're always by the phone 24 hours a day and seven days a week, ready to hear your voice. Give us a call, your thoughts, your questions, your comments, a prayer request. Just dial this number. 1-800-757-VIEW. That's 1-800-757-8439. I'll give you the number again at the end of our broadcast today, but we want you to know we are always glad to hear from you. We're so thankful today to have as our guest on Boggs. He is the producer of a documentary called A Ripple of Hope. And as you've just heard, this documentary doesn't just tell a story, it actually changes lives. Uh, as the fireman retired shared with you about how watching that story unfold on the screen and hearing Senator Kennedy's words and, and understanding how Indianapolis was spared, a conflagration that overtook so many other cities, how that softened him and made him a more whole person. I know, Don, that uh, you grew up in Ohio. Uh, you grew up in a home that was clothed by faith with strong values and your life uh, unfolded in, in quintessentially all-American ways, we might say. But your own sense of of brotherhood, of sisterhood, of, of being one with a family beyond your own nuclear family. How did that develop? Did you grow up in a multicultural world, or is that something that came later? No, I, I did not, like men, most of us, probably in the United States. You know, I was born in Akron, Ohio. We lived there until 
I was about six years old, and then we moved to a rural area. I wouldn't quite call it a suburb. I mean, it was a, we were in a little village called Loyal Oak. And to my knowledge, there were no African-American families or Hispanic families, no, no ethnic minority groups at all in, in that village. The most ethnic we got was there were a lot of Polish, Eastern European. Those were the others. There. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. know, names like uh, Turbovich and Manchalov and things like Adamov, things like that. But my father had had in his work life insurance at first and then printing later, had had a lot of experience uh, with various uh, minorities and had a wonderful rapport with people. But, uh, you know, the only African-American person that I had ever known until I was uh, probably in college, honestly, was a pastor in Akron, Ohio named Ron Fowler. And the only reason I knew Ron Fowler is because that my father printed all the uh, bulletins and weekly He was a client, so to speak. Tithing envelopes, offering envelopes, yeah. And uh, for some reason, Pastor Fowler would visit our home to talk about those and pick them up. You know, usually Dad delivered these things. He would go out. He'd like to go places. He'd meet with people. But but Ron came to our home. And uh, it was through Ron that I had my first association with African Americans. And, and Ron uh, was amazing. You know Ron, and he can work in a white world just as well as anybody. He could move in every community yeah. flawlessly, it seems. So, I mean, and I didn't know this till later, but you know, his dialect changed. Uh, the huh. way he postured himself changed. The way he spoke He knew how to changed. adapt Absolutely. to get along. Absolutely. But I did not know that because I was young and naive. And I, I grew up with the, the very clear value from my parents that all people uh, you know, are equal. They're all children of God, even if they look different. But that was the extent of it. And your church that raised you up uh, was part of a larger church family that had African-American congregations. Uh, They were not mixed up together in the same Sunday worship service, but you were part of a larger church family that that we know as the Church of God that had diversity in it. And I know that led you to an experience as a teen uh, to go to a convention in Atlanta where you experienced some powerful visuals and emotional touchstones. Tell me about that. You're right. The church at that time was fairly segregated, and and I would say voluntarily so. It just seemed more comfortable, if you will. There was a lot of communication between the groups, but still on a Sunday morning at a given church, there would be a predominantly white or black audience. Well, in 1970, uh, a year and a half after Martin Luther King was assassinated, uh, my youth minister came to us one one Sunday night and said, hey, we've gone to the youth convention of the Church of God. You know, you've been there, done that. It's pretty exciting. Did you know that uh, the black church has their own There's youth convention? There's another convention. Yeah, the inter- inspirational youth convention. And uh, we thought, boy, that I mean, that just seems strange to me. Why, why would that be? I'd seen blacks at, at our youth convention. Why is there another youth convention? naivete on my part. And uh, our pastor said to us, uh, we would be welcome there. And I think given how difficult 1968 has been as a year, with everything that went down that year, and 1969 was not looking a lot better. 
1970. Here we are, 1970, <laughs> and Kent State shootings. Things we're just in a bad time. It was difficult being an adolescent at that time, I think. And he said we'd be welcome there. Do any of you want to go? And I turned to my friend Gary, and we looked at each other and said, "Hey, sure, we'll go to Atlanta. This sounds like a great adventure." And so we found ourselves uh, just after Christmas getting on the Robert uh, Street Church of God bus and leaving for Atlanta, Georgia. And you're in the company of largely African-American teens. We are in the company of all African-Americans <laughs> on that bus. And, and Ron I, Fowler. R- Ron Fowler did not go. Oh, he did or at not? At least he didn't ride the bus with us. Uh, maybe he was there. I don't know. But, um, you know, first we got on the bus and we didn't know anybody and we didn't know what to do. So we, we made the even dumber mistake of sitting right behind the driver. And yeah. now I, I kind of cringe at that, you know, years of segregation on buses with black sitting in the back, yeah. and here these two white guys sit right behind the driver. Everyone was so nice. They were so nice. Uh, they're very accommodating. And being in the minority for the first time uh, in my life, you know, 1,500 African Americans at a convention center in Atlanta and Gary and I, and everything was different. And, you know, my, my beliefs in all people are equal, all people are children of God, did not change. But my perceptions, my misperceptions of, oh, yeah, African Americans are equal to us. Sure, they're just like us. I don't know where that came from. No. Just inexperience, I guess. Yeah. You know, I didn't, didn't know any differently. And suddenly it was like, okay, yeah, equal, this is really different, cultural differences that I have been completely unaware of. And, and that brought me to uh, an interest in communication, cross-cultural communication, intercultural communication, to a desire to travel more and see more of that diversity, to understand it, to mature my values and beliefs, uh, not to immediately assume that everything that's different from my way of thinking is wrong. Hmm. And having to make some difficult decisions about it. Well, if it, this is different, but when it, is it wrong? How can it be wrong? What are the criteria for that? And realizing, you know what, just as with food, you know, this is different. Maybe I don't like this, but that doesn't mean it's wrong for somebody else to eat this. Well, it's crazy. There's not a moral pecking order. No. So, you know, it, it matured me to the point where, okay, I need to think about these differences spiritually before I make any kinds of judgments about whether this is right or wrong. And there are very few of those things that I think then are wrong when you begin to look at things spiritually. And you're in high school. Wow. <laughs> While you're in Atlanta, I know you went to the graveside of Martin Luther King Jr., then not developed as it has been today. What did you experience there? Yeah. We had a, we did a march. Uh, we were in Atlanta a year and a half after King's death. Uh, there was a tour of some of the major sites related to Dr. King in Atlanta, which we went on. And then we did, we did a march to his graveside, which was in a different location in the city. It was in the inner city, uh, in a very poor, uh, run-down area. And uh, we walked through an area where uh, people lived who did not look like Gary and I, uh, who were not as wealthy as Gary and I. I mean, it didn't seem like we were wealthy, but uh, in comparison, we surely were. And we came to that grave, and it was... Uh, in pictures that I took, you can see, you know, the little picket fence is broken, and there's trash everywhere. And uh, the leaders of the 
Inspirational Youth Convention, spoke there. There were some good comments made. And Gary and I lingered a bit too long in this area and found, uh, you know, when we were done there, we found that we were by ourselves having to walk, you know, probably a mile and a half out of this neighborhood. And it was a very uncomfortable feeling. And, you know, we were followed by a group of young young men who were uh, probably curious and uh, found our presence there to be a novelty and uh, I think probably entertained themselves a little bit with that and, you know, kind of verbally harassing us. And well, you experienced... It was as a 15-, 16-year-old. Well, sure. I'm sorry, 17-year-old. And you're experiencing what it is to be conspicuous by your own diversity. And to be in the minority. That's right. Uh, where, where things are different, and maybe I don't quite understand what's happening here, but I, I, I'm uncomfortable just by being in a minority. So that, that experience led me to some overseas travel, so many trips to Haiti and Africa where I was always again in the minority. Uh, and I realized very quickly that one thing that I took with me, even in those situations, uh, that still made that an unequal equation was my wealth, simply by virtue of the fact that I was able to be in Haiti or in right. Kenya or Tanzania right. or South Africa uh, was an indicator that, that I was wealthy, that I was able to do that. The documentary, A Ripple of Hope, uh, is inspired by a quote of Robert F. Kennedy. And, J.J., I think you uh, have that. It, it's like so many things that Senator Kennedy spoke, elegantly conceived. What does it say? Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. Those words speak about justice, about hope, about changing the world. Is there something that you've carried with you, Don, through these many experiences that you got early on but has come to life in new ways as you've been more exposed and your horizon stretched to understand the diversity and the grandeur of that diversity in God's creation of humanity. I think I have sought in my life to try to lead a life that was upright, that helped to make a difference, however small, that uh, I would not have framed it this way years ago, but I would say today that would be one of those tiny ripples of hope that come together. And I think the best passage for that that I'm aware of is uh, Micah 6.8. What does that say, J.J., Micah 6.8? It's an Old Testament prophet who speaks famously here. The Lord has told you what is good, and this is what he requires of you, to do what is right, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I suppose all of us need to look in the mirror and wonder what we propose to be. How do we bring those words to life in this tumultuous world. But we want to encourage you to know that wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you have done and wherever you have been, you can give your life into the hands of Jesus right now, and he can transform you by the renewing of your mind. He can make you different and can alter the way in which you interpret events and give you speech and words that you never thought possible to be the voice of reason and common peace. You can be that. Lord, make me an instrument of your peace.
wherever you are, whatever you're doing, if you have a question, if you have a comment, if you have a thought you'd like to share, we want to hear from you. If you'd like to know more about this Jesus who so profoundly can alter the course of events and our own individual journeys, give us a call. Just dial this number, 1-800-757-VIEW, 24 hours a day and seven days a week, 1-800-757-8439. If you'd rather not call, but rather check us out online, JJ, what's that web address? cbhviewpoint.org. You can read there about the Viewpoint Ministry. We can connect you with a copy of the film, A Ripple of Hope, or you can send us an email and we will respond. If you prefer, you can just use the Postal Service and write me a letter. Address it to Jim Lyon, Viewpoint, Post Office Box 2420, Anderson, Indiana, 46018, USA. But whether you call us up on the phone, check us out online, or use the post, please let us hear from you this week. Don Boggs, thanks for bringing your passions to life on the big screen. That documentary, A Ripple of Hope, is worth seeing. And And owning. I own it. I love it. Thank you so Uh, much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. And we're so glad you're with us today. And JJ, always good to be in your company. Thanks, Jim. And we're so glad you tuned in and joined us on Viewpoint today. As always, it's our hope to help you see your world from heaven's view. For all of us at the Viewpoint team, for all of us at Church of God Ministries, which is the host of our broadcast, this is Jim Lyon. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.